morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. While you're turning there, before I read our passage, I want to invite you to imagine something with me. Close your eyes if you want to, but don't fall asleep. Imagine you are a uh, first century Hebrew. You live in Israel in a city called Capernaum on the north side or the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And looming large in your life is Rome's occupation of your land been about a hundred years since they seized control of it. Roman soldiers are garrisoned in your city, and state oppression is a part of life. Sometimes it's physical, often it's psychological, and always it's economical. Roman taxes are high. The tension in your country and in your city is high. Rebellion is always simmering under the surface, threatening to boil over. There's the Sikari, which means dagger men. They are a secret society of Israeli assassins who sneak up behind Roman officials in crowds or jump Roman soldiers in dark alleys, slit their throats, and then disappear. You think maybe your uncle is one of them, but you're afraid to ask him. There's another group called the Zealots, a friend of yours just joined. They're more like an armed insurgency group, and they take their name from the zeal of Phineas in the book of Exodus, who we're told killed thousands in the name of the Lord. You're not convinced either the Syracai or the Zealots are the way to deal with the Romans, and yet the scriptures you grew up hearing and studying in the synagogues talking or talk about how God saved your ancestors from the Egyptian oppressor, and he saved them from the Babylonian oppressor, and he saved them from the Assyrian oppressor. So you wonder, well, where is God now? These same scriptures prophesy about a coming Messiah, a Savior, an anointed king who will deliver God's people from bondage and establish a kingdom of peace. That sounds like a good solution to the Roman problem, but it's been hundreds of years, and the Messiah has yet to appear. That's not to say people don't claim to be the Messiah. Every few decades, someone comes along and claims that they are, but it always ends the same. The would-be Messiah gathers an army, makes war on Rome, and then Rome crushes them. The last time this happened, some 6,000 of your fellow Jews were crucified along the road between Rome and Jerusalem. So you're oppressed, you're persecuted for your faith, you're waiting on God to send a Messiah, and in the meantime, you're just trying to eke out a living. You're just trying to get by, but you hear about a rabbi that's traveling through the countryside, this new teacher, they call him Jesus of Nazareth, and he's preaching a gospel of repentance because he says the kingdom of heaven is a hand. 
Now, to be honest, he sounds a little out there to you, kind of like that guy named John who wore camel hair and ate locusts, dipped him in honey. Only it said Jesus also heals the sick, and he casts out demons. In fact, you know someone that says they've been healed by Jesus. And there's all this talk about how there's something different about this man, that he teaches with this authority and He's holy, but he's also humble, and he's, he's strong, but he's also affectionate. And, and some have even wondered, could he be the Messiah? You doubt that. He sounds nothing like the religious leaders in your day, and definitely not like the would-be Messiahs you've seen come and go, but you figure it can't hurt to go and listen to him, so you travel out to where he's teaching, and you're actually shocked. There's thousands of people gathered on a hillside listening to him, and and you draw near, and, and you begin to understand the appeal. He, he says these wonderful things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've never heard anything like this before. A lot of what this Jesus teaches sounds really compelling until he starts talking about not resisting the one who is evil. Jesus said God wants you to turn the other cheek, to give away your cloak, to, to go the extra mile in serving a Roman soldier, to give freely to those in need, this makes you uncomfortable. But just when you think it couldn't get worse, just when you think Jesus couldn't say anything harder, he teaches the following. Matthew 5. Verses 43 through 48, you can follow along. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sins rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. the word of our Lord. Back in 1958, in an issue of the magazine The Christian Century, a man named Norman Pittenger published an article entitled, A Critique of C.S. Lewis. For those of you who don't know, C.S. Lewis was a Christian apologist and novelist, uh, and not someone who I would want to critique while he's still alive. Anyway, Pittenger's article in it, he accused Lewis of not caring for the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular for not enjoying passages like the one we're studying today. C.S. Lewis happened to see the article and decided it merited a reply. He begins rather humorously saying, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? Then he gets more serious. I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read 
that passage with tranquil pleasure. In other words, you shouldn't be able to study a passage like we're looking at today with a, a detached ease. Oh yeah, loving your enemy. That's a nice idea. That's a great philosophy. We should do that. Now, passages like this one are incredibly challenging and incredibly convicting. This is where the Holy Spirit intends to knock us flat on our face, to point out where we need to grow as Christians. And so as we even go into this passage today, I, I just want to particularly invite you. This is not just a passage to come in and, and study this is a passage to come under and be challenged. This is a passage to invite the Lord. Knock me down. Hit me in the face with a sledgehammer, Jesus. Because I want to grow in love. We want to make our way through this passage by answering three questions today Who are my enemies? How should I love my enemies, and why should I love my enemies? So we begin with question number one, who are my enemies? Just as he has been doing all throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is correcting the perversion of God's law taught by the religious leaders in his day. So he says in verse 43, we read there, you have heard that it was said, he's saying this is what the religious leaders of your day teach, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is not what the Old Testament teaches. It's a perversion of it, like I said. What the Old Testament teaches in places like Leviticus 19, verse 18, is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the Old Testament teaches. But over time, it came to mean, we came to, people came to take it to mean, well, you have to love only your neighbor. And then as time went on and on and on, this passage became used to justify hatred against your enemies. You have to love your neighbors, but your enemies you can hate. This is what was taught in Jesus' day. And against it, Jesus teaches in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So who are the enemies Jesus was talking about here? Well, as I alluded to in my introduction, most Jews in his day would have immediately thought of the Romans who occupied and defiled their land. Jesus was teaching his disciples, even them you are to love. More broadly, Jesus teaches here that our enemies are those who persecute us. Those who oppose you and hurt you. Uh, to persecute means to pursue with harmful intent. To pursue with harmful intent. So our enemies are anyone and everyone who seek to do us harm. It can include the mild scorn of a Facebook troll leaving nasty comments on your post to the more severe suffering endured by Christians on the other side of the world at the hand of Muslim militants wielding a machete. No matter how mild or severe, anyone who wants to do you harm is your enemy in one sense. Anyone who sets themselves against you. So your enemy might be an ill-tempered spouse, a rebellious child, a cranky neighbor, 
a contract-canceling theater. Your enemy might be that boss that serves you injustice after injustice, or the peer who slanders you, or the friend who lies to you. They can be the government official that wants to impose their will upon you. And Jesus' command is that you are to love them. Love your enemy. His point seems to be that you don't stop loving them because they, dis- dis- or because they offend you or dishonor you or hurt you or make your life harder or disappoint you or threaten you. Even still, You love them. Okay, Jesus, how? That leads to question number two. How should I love my enemies? How should I love my enemies? The kind of love Jesus has in mind here is actually a very practical thing. It's it's not first a sentimental, feelings-based kind of love. I want you to notice Jesus didn't say anything about our emotions here. No, he talks about a tangible, practical, action-based love. And he gives us three examples in this passage about how we are to love our enemies. Now, these are not the only three ways we can love them. They're not exhaustive, but they're illustrative. They give us ideas. Uh, They give us an idea. They point us in the right direction. So let's work through them, but I want to go through them backwards. Uh, They are greeting your enemy, serving your enemy, and praying for your enemy. So the first one, verse 47, Jesus says, love for our enemies looks like greeting them. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So loving our enemies looks like greeting them graciously when we see them. Now, this sounds like a, a small thing until we get honest with ourselves. Are we not tempted to avoid those who oppose us? To try and go the other way, duck into a different room, use caller ID to evade them. In the last couple of weeks, I found myself somewhere with someone that's genuinely harmed me. They don't hate me. We're not bitter enemies or anything like that, but they've wronged me. And part of me really wanted to just avoid them. You ever feel like that? Like, I just want to bury myself in a conversation with somebody else so that I don't have to talk to this person. Or for me, I've got it real easy. I've got six kids. I can make myself look real busy just attending to them so I don't have to attend to somebody else I don't want to attend to. But Jesus calls us to love our enemies, which looks like kind of baseline, greeting them. And I don't think he means just be courteous to them. That's too small a thing. The word greet means, the word greet here means to welcome kindly, to receive with joy, and even to salute in honor. So Jesus wants me to, this is what I think, Jesus wants me to look my enemy in the face and care about them. 
inquire how they're doing. Love looks like greeting them. Second, Jesus says, love for our enemies looks like serving them. Looks like greeting them. It looks like serving them. Verse 45. This is part of the passage that Jacob read. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Sunshine and rain are the two things needed to make food grow for human life. And God meets this need for the good and for the evil, for the just and the unjust. So loving our enemies looks like serving them and meeting their needs. This is the same thing Paul has in mind when in Romans 12 he writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, overcoming evil, or love for our enemies, looks like meeting their practical needs. Robert Chapman was a minister in England in the 19th century, and he was buddies with the likes of, get this, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, and Charles Spurgeon. That'd be like a nice little clan to hang out with. In fact, Charles Spurgeon described Robert Chapman as the saintliest man I ever knew. And another contemporary Christian leader said of Chapman, we talk of the heavenlies, but Robert Chapman lives in them. Chapman was known, not mostly for his preaching ministry, but for the way he lived Christ, and primarily for the way that he lived out Christ's love for others. Um, He's noted as saying, my business will be to love and not seek that others shall love. And that's what he did. His life is riddled with stories of incredible and sacrificial love. In fact, he became so well known for his love that a letter abroad, sent from abroad, addressed only to R.C. Chapman, University of Love, England, was somehow correctly delivered to him. So here's a story from Chapman's life. One day he was preaching on the street in his city that he lived in uh, when a man who was a well-known grocer in that town, he owned a grocery store, became so offended by Chapman preaching that Jesus was the only way of salvation that he came up and he spit in Chapman's face. He just spit in him. And from then on, this grocer made himself Chapman's enemy. He looked for every opportunity he could to criticize him publicly, to mock him, to oppose him, to just make his life hard. Chapman, for his part, always responded with kindness to this grocer. And after this had gone on for for some years, it all came to a head like this. One of Chapman's wealthy relatives was visiting him, and he offered to buy Chapman some groceries. Chapman agreed to this, but he insisted The groceries must be purchased at a certain grocery store. Guess which one? The guy who hated him, right? Now, totally ignorant of the grocer's hostility toward Chapman, this relative went as directed and 
And Chapman lived humbly, he lived poorly, and so this relative wanted to bless him, so he purchases all of these foods and these goods, and, and he goes up and, and pays the grocer, and in those days, the grocer offered, deliver, offered delivered the foods and the goods. And so the relative told the grocer, I want you to deliver all this to Robert Chapman's house. And the stunned grocer told the visitor, he had to be kidding, he must have the wrong shop, because Chapman was his bitter enemy. And the relative was perplexed and said, well, I, Chapman insisted that I come to your shop specifically. So the grocer gathered all the food and goods and took them to Chapman's house. But before he could even walk through the door, he broke into tears. He begged Chapman's forgiveness. And right there, Chapman let Loving your enemies looks like serving them. Third, love for our enemies looks like praying for them. Praying for them. Look at me at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them who persecute you. It's difficult to hate those for whom you pray. And few things actually increase our love for our enemies, like earnestly praying for them. Praying for them is interceding to God on their behalf. He's not talking about praying against them. God, I call down your lightning! It's taking a concern for their well-being and going before the throne of grace and begging God to bless them. It might be for their conversion. It might be for their conviction. It might be that God would, in his kindness, stop them on the path that they're going down. It could be for their healing. It might be for God to just make his face to shine upon them, however we pray for them. It's interceding for God on their behalf, and it's always for their good. This is exactly what we find Jesus doing on the cross in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is what Stephen did as he was stoned to death. We read about this in Acts 7, verse 60. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So Jesus doesn't want us to just say good things to our enemy, and, and do good things for our enemy. He also wants us to pray for the good of our enemies when they are nowhere around. Love looks like asking God to save them, asking God to bless them, asking God to help them in ways that only God knows is best for them. This is powerfully illustrated in the most recent edition of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. In it, we're told the remarkable story of Datma, a Christian woman from Nigeria. Uh, her husband, Vincentor, pastored a church in, the er in an area where Fulani Islamic militants had begun persecuting Christians. And yet, despite the rise of attacks, uh, Vincentor decided he would still make his regular weekend trip to the church. Usually, he took his wife Datma with him, uh, but this time he left her behind with their four kids, thinking it, it could be too dangerous. And as it happened, that weekend was actually also 
the birthday of one of his daughters. And she pleaded with him to stay. But Vincentor and Datma assured her he'd be back soon to celebrate with her. Over the course of the week, weekend, Datma called to check in on Vince, Vincentor. And she knew something was wrong when he picked up and she could hear that he was running. And breathlessly he told her, I'll call you back. The Faluni are chasing us. And yet before he hung up, Datma heard gunshots reeling in the background. The rest of the weekend, she's unable to reach him. And Monday morning, a friend showed up at their door. He told her that her husband had been shot by the Islamic militants. He died. A little later, she learned that when the attack began, Vincentor had looked around for stragglers and he had gone back to help them, insisting he would not leave any of his flock behind. Datma says she is not angry at God for allowing her husband to die, which I find incredible. In fact, she says to the contrary, she's actually proud of him for keeping the faith and helping others. And she says she harbors she harbors no ill will toward the man who killed her husband. Instead, this is how she prays. She asks God to use her husband's death to inspire his killer to one day take her husband's place in ministry. And Dotma says she's provoked to pray that way because her children pray regularly for the conversion of their dad's killer, telling her they want to see those men in heaven with their dad. kind of love is just otherworldly. And it begs the question, why should I love my enemy like that? I mean, it's amazing. We hold up the example. But why should I do that. They don't deserve that. So why should I? Question number three, why should I love my enemies? One, Jesus gives us really several reasons why here, several motives to obey this. I see at least two in our text and a third it points to. First, we should love our enemies 
because we will be like God our Father. Verses 44 and 45 again, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now we know that Jesus is not saying we have to pay our way into God's family by loving our enemies. That would contradict scriptures like Ephesians 2 that tell us salvation is by grace alone, that it's a gift God freely gives to those who believe. So we don't earn our way into God's family by loving our enemies. Rather, Jesus is saying that when we love our enemies, we prove who we are, a child of God. When we act like our Father in heaven acts, we show we are his children. Like father, like son, his character is in us now, and so we are inclined, even by his spirit, to act like him. And God loves his enemies. Verse 45 says, by making the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and by sending rain on the just and on the unjust. So think about that. Every morning when the sun rises, God's son, it says, it rises on the worst terrorist and the most devoted believer. He, he makes the rain fall on both Datma and on the one who killed her husband, on Datma's children and the Islamic militants. This is not how we would run things, right? We do what Jacob said, which is this, the righteous get the sunshine, and the unrighteous walk around in perpetual darkness. Oh, that's a bad guy. That's how we'd run things. We'd make darkness fall. If it was our son, they'd get no light. Richard Dawkins is an aggressive, I'd say militant atheist. He refers to the God of the Bible, my God, your God, as, quote, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, which means someone who kills their own son, pestilential, one who produces pestilence, megalomanical, I can't even say these words, sadomachist, a bad word, capriciously malevolent, malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins hates God. But God still makes the sun shine him at the, on the, at the beach. God doesn't even turn it up a little bit. So I'll, just, well, I'll give him a little sunshine, or burn at least, you know. Like, God just makes the sun shine on him. He makes the rain fall on Richard Dawkins' garden. Why? Why? Because God loves him. Because God loves him. Now, I don't know about you, but I bristle under that. I don't like that. And I, I have some theological things that just like pop up. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, you know, like, I'm not even sure I can go there. What do you mean God loves him? But it's true. God loves him. He loves his enemies. Now, this is not his saving love. Scripture talks about God's love in different ways. Same as we do. We talk about love in different ways, right? Like, I will tell you I love my wife, and I will tell you I love pizza. And I don't mean the same thing, right? 
I mean, my wife sure hopes I don't. I always say, I love my wife or I love my children. And, you know, I'll say, I love you. But no offense, I don't love you like I love them. If I say I love my wife and I say I love my mom, I'm not talking about my, or I am talking about my love, but the object of my love means I'm talking about it in different ways. So when we read in our passage that God loves his enemies, even the likes of Richard Dawkins or Pontius Pilate or Herod of Agrippa, this doesn't mean he loves them with a saving love, with an elective redeeming love. There are talks that talk, texts that talk about that, but this is not one of them. Rather, this passage simply insists he does good for both the unjust and the just unequivocally. And this is the standard of love for our enemies. It's indiscriminatory. Alfred Plummer has said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. This is the first reason why we should love our enemies, because God does and we are his children. Second reason Jesus gives us for why we should love our enemies is for heavenly reward. We find this in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And in the parallel passage of this in Luke chapter 6, Jesus makes an even more explicit statement about the great reward that awaits you for loving your enemies. So Jesus promises reward here. And what I think he means is, if you love those who love you, then you already have your reward right? If I surprise Ginny with a bouquet of flowers and she rewards me by making my favorite meal or by giving me a back massage later that night, then I have my reward. But if I love my enemy, if I go greet them warmly, but they reply coldly, or if I seek to serve them, but they just take advantage of me, or if I intercede to God on their behalf, but they just keep on attacking me, I'm loving them not for the reward I get now from them, but from the reward I get later from God. In passages like Matthew 16 and, and Matthew 26, Jesus clearly teaches that the kingdom of heaven will be a place where followers will be rewarded, Jesus' followers will be rewarded according to their deeds. If you do a lot with what God has given you, you will get a greater reward in heaven. If you squander what God has given you, the resources, the gifts, and even your opportunities say to love your enemies, then do not be surprised to find your reward less in heaven. But Jesus always holds it out as an opportunity for you to get more. It's not a threat. It's a, would you not like something like this? It's a motivator. Jesus wants to reward us. So Jesus his command here to love our enemies with hope of reward is really a call to place our hope and to place our joy in a future reward of God, not in the present reality of how people treat us. What we do now actually affects eternity later. So we love our enemies now, not to be rewarded now, but to be rewarded later by God. And, 
And what is that reward? Well, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Scripture only hints at what that reward is. Um, you know, who, who knows what in the mind of the Lord he has for us. The best we can say is that it probably involves increased capacities and increased responsibilities uh, in, in a good way. So increased re- capacities. I, I like to think of it kind of like this. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but in this life, um, in this life, it's kind of like if, if, say I love my enemy, it's like I'm stretching out my soul in a way where I'll be able to receive more love in eternity. Jonathan Edwards explained that kind of increased capacity like this. He said, all shall be perfectly happy in heaven. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast, so he's thinking about a ship, every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. And yet there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign through the whole society. So an increased capacity and regarding increased responsibilities In the parable of the talent, Jesus talks about those who are faithful with what they're given in this life being set over more in heaven. Uh, In Luke, he talks about them ruling over more cities. So there's something there where we'll be set over greater responsibility and it'll be a noble and a good thing. So we should love our enemies now so that we can maximize our reward in heaven. That's not selfish. That's how our Father wants to bless us. And then a third and final reason we should love our enemies, I think this passage points us to, is that this kind of enemy love communicates the gospel. Powerfully. Just connect the dots with me here. Remember back in verse 17, Jesus said, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, To fulfill it. So in some sense, this would point us beyond our text to find its fulfillment in Jesus' life and ministry. And we find that in his death, don't we? After his enemies beat and spat on him, maligned and crucified him, we already saw this. Jesus prayed for them, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus acted in love toward his enemies by seeking their forgiveness from his Father. And yet Jesus did, not even, or did even more than that. He not only prayed for his enemies, he also died for his enemies. That's you and me. In Romans 5, 8, right, Paul explains this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is not just sinners generically. This is enemies personally. Paul tells us, verse 10, a couple verses later, Romans 5, 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see, the good news of the gospel is that while you and I were in our sin, personal enemies of God, and like the rest of mankind, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3 says, and yet Jesus loved and sacrificed his life for us to make his enemies his friends. We're just saying it. Once his enemy, now seated at his table. And so coming full circle, how do men and women come to know God? Well, they meet him in the scriptures. They meet him in the gospel that we preach, and they meet him in the gospel that we live. Our enemies can come to know Christ 
or can come to conviction or can come to greater Christ-likeness when they look at us and see a reflection of Christ. And they'll see that reflection when we love them. We should love our enemies because it communicates the gospel to them powerfully. So in conclusion, the sum of the matter is this. We saw last week Jesus' radical call to resist not the one who is evil. This week we've looked at his even more radical call to go love our enemies. The first is a call to passive non-retaliation. The second is a call to active love. Jesus calls us beyond forbearance to service. He calls us beyond the refusal to repay evil to the resolve to overcome evil with good. And as we do this, Jesus says in verse 48, we're actually pursuing the very perfection of God our Father. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is not a perfection we can attain fully in this life, but it is one we can aspire to truly in this life. And the mark of perfection is this, that our love is not determined by the attractiveness or the loveliness we find in its object. Our love is not conditional on our being loved. It's not directed only towards those we expect to be loved back by. When we were unlovely, God loved us. When we had nothing to offer God, He loved us. And so the love we give is the love we have received. It's the love of our Father in heaven, fulfilled perfectly in Christ Jesus, his Son, and passed on. So let us go. Love. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, Lord, this word is too much for us, God. It feels, um, it can feel okay in the confines of a safe little church pew where I don't have to interact with anybody who might be my enemy. Um, but as, as one of my teachers used to say at Pastors College, the profundity is in the doing of it. We have to go and live this out, God, and so... Lord, we take comfort in knowing that it's actually possible to do so because Jesus Christ has done it for us and fills us with your Holy Spirit and so enables us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. So God, I pray that you would fill all of us here today who are open to your filling and inviting of you, God, for all who want to be a people of love, not just to those who love them, but to those who do not love them, I pray, God, fill us with your spirit that we might truly be loving people. And Lord, where you need to bring conviction or where you have brought conviction, God, I pray that they, all of us would confess our sins and find you are faithful and just to forgive us. And you send us back out, mended up in your love to go be vessels of love. So help us, we pray, in all this. In Jesus' name, amen.